If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Exodus chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 17 on page 55 of that Bible. As we just mentioned in our prayer, this past Friday was Veterans Day. Originally, it was known as Armistice Day, and it was originally declared amongst many of the Allied countries at the end of World War I when that armistice was signed. It was signed into effect at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which is why we always have Veterans Day on November 11th. They were seven years late in signing it. Had they signed it seven years earlier, it would have been in the 11th year, but the World War hadn't broken out at that time, so it would have been difficult to do it then. Missed opportunity, truly. Veterans Day was renamed, or excuse me, Armistice Day was renamed as Veterans Day in the Eisenhower administration, and and its focus was shifted in America from the veterans and those who had died in the cause of World War I to just generally recognizing veterans of all uh, stripes in, in our country, especially American veterans. Not just those who have died, not just those who are present in service today, but all who have served in the military at any time. But, as we've said, Armistice Day was actually a day that's wider known in Europe. The French still know it as Armistice Day. The the British have it as Remembrance Day. It's good to remember that this is not just a, a day for us to remember our veterans, but a day that stands with Britain and France and all of those allies who stood against Germany in World War I, that this is not just an American phenomenon. It is a phenomenon across the world. It was a great world war. We're reminded that wars happen all over the place. It's a long-standing tradition in human history, not just in American culture, not just in the culture of the West, but all over the world that we continually have wars. All wars are a sign of the depravity of man, although not all who fight in them do so because they're depraved. There are good reasons to go to war. It doesn't change the fact that war is a horrible atrocity. It is an ugly reminder of the fallenness of man, that our words do not always suffice, that diplomacy does not always attain the end that it seeks, that sometimes the only way to keep evil in check, to stop evil from flourishing, is death. Many today would say that they understand the horrors of war, and therefore they would do everything they could to avoid it. But in reality, that hardly works. For evil thrives when good is silent and is unwilling to die for what is right. At the same time, even though we constantly engage in wars, we often view ourselves as on the right side of everything because we are loath to see in ourselves our own evil. We have to remind ourselves that this isn't just a Western phenomenon. The church has certainly not put an end to war, even with all of its influence here in the West. Many atrocities have been proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ. The rank greed and selfishness of the Crusades, all the way down to the lynching of African Americans, the name of Jesus Christ has been used in each of those to promote some of the most horrific actions taken on by sinful humans. And thus, evil persists. What are we to do? The Old Testament is known for war and bloodshed, although, frankly, we have to say that those themes are over-embellished by many. 
but it is an unavoidable reality. And here we get a sense of that very problem. This is the beginning of what is going to be a number of battles that are going to take shape. We've had some of these in Genesis. We've come across some skirmishes and some wars, if you read from Genesis on through, but we are going to enter into a prolonged time very, very soon where the people of God will be engaging in battles with people, not just peoples on the outskirts of the land, but going into the land, they will be sent in to conquest the land. The land is theirs, but people live there. They will not be going in simply to displace people by evicting them or by wishing them well as they escort them off to the premises of some other property or by giving them some sort of severance package. They will escort them out with the sword. There will be much blood shed. And yet at the same time, we are called to be people of peace. How do we explain that? It's one of the chief problems that a lot of people have with the Bible and a lot of people have with the Christian church. These things were true in the Old Testament, but you say that they're not true now in the New Testament. I think rightly we say that they're not true in the New Testament. We're not a people of bloodshed. We are a people of peace. How does a God who never changes, a God who is as constant as the sun coming up in the morning, counsel people to war in the Old Testament, command it, demand it, and in the New Testament, say that now his people are to lay down their lives? It turns, as one would think, on what we understand of the work of Jesus. For, I would tell you, we are to be a people of war. Even as we are a people of peace, we are a people of war. But before we can understand the war that we are supposed to wage, we need to know who our enemy truly is. So let's turn to God's word and see for ourselves how we are to be a people of war. Let us read here from Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him. And fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. 
So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war from Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of our God. What are we to make of our enemies? First, let us understand our eternal enemy. Our eternal enemy. I should say straight from the start that I'm using the word eternal in a very particular way. I do not mean that it will last forever, even though that's what the word eternal means. This is the word I chose, so you're just going to have to get over it. Uh, What I mean by eternal is that while we are on this side of glory, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we are always going to have this enemy with us. There is an enemy that is ever-present with us that we will never thrust off entirely, that we will never get rid of completely. We know that when Jesus Christ comes in his fullness, he will indeed rule over all things. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there will come a time at the end when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus will one day put all enemies under his feet. And until that day, so far as we exist in this life, until the coming of that final kingdom, we will always be set on every side by enemies, particularly our eternal enemy, which is sin. The greatest threat to our well-being does not exist outside of us, It doesn't exist in our culture. It doesn't exist in faraway places and people who scream things at us. It exists in ourselves. It is our own sinful disposition, our own pride and desires and worries and anxieties and fears. It is our sin. In some sense, this particular passage is a turning point in the nation of Israel. This is the moment where the grumbling of Israel becomes paradigmatic. This is the moment that all future grumblings will be looked back upon. Psalm 95 mentions Meribah and Massah specifically. Hebrews 3 and 4 do the same. This is where Israel has somehow turned a corner. You might want to ask, why not chapter 16? Back in chapter 16, we talked about they they grumbled continually. That word is brought up. They grumbled, they grumbled, they grumbled. and, And God seems to be okay with it. He seems to put up with it. Why is this all of a sudden a a remarkable incident that doesn't seem any different than what happens in 16, but this is the one that is memorialized forever and ever and ever? I think the answer lies in simply the ignorance of the people of God. People themselves were held to be in ignorance, I would have to think. They, They seemed to know something of God. They seemed to know something of his power and something of his might. Perhaps they thought, again, of the fickleness of the gods of Egypt, and they were wondering when this God was going to change, when his constancy in providing for them and and his generosity would somehow reach an end, when he would turn on them, as so many of the other gods do. But at some point in time, thinking that God is going to be devious or tricksy stands against the incredible amount of material work that he has done for the people of Israel. At some point in time, the scales tip. 
Now the people of Israel are actually accountable for what they do know. That God does indeed provide for them. That God does indeed care for them. What might have been understandable ignorance has turned into nothing but willful faithlessness. A sort of ignorance is everywhere. People don't truly know who God is. Even if they claim to know who God is, even if they think that they have heard semblances and and have read the Bible and know who God is, they don't truly know the goodness and the provision and the, the kindness of God and how he is so constant day after day after day. Paul runs into this in the center of the Areopagus. He walks around Athens and he sees these memorials to unknown gods. And Paul stands up and he says, listen, what you, what you know you don't know, I'm going to tell you about. And in that speech, he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. He said, you might have been ignorant before, that day is past. And God is now calling you to repent. The very moment that Paul opens up his mouth to explain to them their unknown God is the day that they come into a time of repentance. Israel knows God. But they didn't trust him. Their lack of faith is seen as grumbling. Who do they think that God is after all that he has done for them? Why would he turn his back on them now? This is why so often the works of the Lord are are painted for us and pressed in front of us. Remember the things that God has done for you. When we forget what the Lord has done for us, we will always begin to doubt what he will do for us. They grumble about something that God has already dealt with before. He's already dealt with their thirst. He has already shown miracles with water after miracle with water. He has made water into blood. He has made bitter water sweet. Certainly, he can give them water again. But instead of simply asking for a solution, they suggest that Moses is evil and devious in his plans and that God is simply up and left. This is the center of the chapter. In the end of verse 7, this question is the center of everything, both friend and foe alike. Is the Lord among us or not? That is their question. Is even there, does he care? Friends, we should be able to understand why people outside grumble. Why people have complaints about God. We should be able to understand that they don't know the goodness and the kindness of God. That they have not tasted of his grace and his providential oversight over their lives. But friends, If you belong to Crossway, if you have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no excuse. You're not ignorant of his kindness and his goodness. You have seen it in full display on the cross. So while there are plenty of moments where it seems like grumbling or complaining or just being frustrated and annoyed are right, you know, Carl, again, not pulling his weight at work, you know that everyone is, is backed up on the highway because you got to merge, and then there's that guy who just goes zooming down the side so he can butt in at the end, and you're frustrated because that's what pushes everybody back to begin with. Waitress is taking her sweet time getting your food to you. The kids are throwing a fit. The government's making stupid decisions and outcomes. There are all these things that in your life, various and sundry things that you experience where you just get frustrated and angry, but in all of that, remember this. Frustration and anger are not fruits of the Spirit. Grumbling and complaining 
are not found as a result of the Spirit working in you. The truth of the matter is that the fruit that we do see listed and the results that we ought to have in our lives are precisely the opposite of grumbling and complaining, of frustration and anger. It's not that we don't voice such difficulties, but we trust in God during the midst of them. Sin, unbelief, doubts the fundamental goodness of God. And the fruit of the Spirit indicates that in us we don't have a spirit of grumbling, but one is full of peace and joy, contentment, and self-control. So those who believe in the Lord must fight unbelief, must fight a grumbling and complaining and discontented spirit. It is our eternal enemy, but we can still be victorious over it. Second, let us look at our internal enemy. And again, this is the word that I picked, so you have to deal with it. I know it sounds like I'm going to talk about sin all over again, and I am, but that's not exactly what I mean. Internal to you, I mean internal within your ranks, internal to your tribe, internal to your people, to your nation, internal to a church. How do we handle the grumbling of our own people? How do we hand a brother or a sister accusing us, coming against us with some false accusation? How do we manage when people who say that they are brothers and sisters of us bring accusations against us which we think are unfounded? This is what's happening to Moses here. He is and he will continue to be a great example of a faithful leader and guide. So as the Israelites turn and grumble and accuse Moses, how does he handle it? First, he thinks wisely. The accusation of his own guilt in bringing the people, not only do they come to him as though he has power to magic water into existence, as though he knows of a freshwater pond right around the corner that he's keeping secret so that he can go swimming in it whenever he wants, as though he can just say, voila, and there is some fresh water. They come to him and they say, give us water to drink. When he, he complains, he says, well, listen, I, I don't know why you're complaining to me. I, I, I'm just doing what the Lord tells me. I can't, can't do anything for you. Your problem is with the Lord, not with me. Notice how they respond to him in verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're, they're putting their death on the very conscience of Moses. You'll notice that Moses' response is very, very clear. He says, why are you getting upset with me? His best response in reality is no response at all. He doesn't respond to their charges. He doesn't come back to them and say, well, you know that I'm doing what the Lord commanded me to do, so shut up and get in line and worry about your own business. He doesn't say, listen, I, I'm, I'm in control here. You have no right to talk to me like this. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't come back and try and justify any of the situation at all. He doesn't ask them to say, well, who is it that carries the staff of God? Who is it that talks to God? Who is it that performs miracles around here? Is it you? No, get in line. He doesn't do any of that. Although not every single word I said would probably be very applicable, he could have said something along those lines. 
He refuses to fight with them. I will admit that this is not always the right way to go. But this is why I think Moses here is thinking wisely. In Proverbs 26, we have these two statements back to back, which is certainly important to figure out which one to use when. The first one, 26.4, says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then in 26.5, we hear, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Moses can see the heat of the people. They are fired up. They are so fired up that they think that they are going to die, and they think that Moses is responsible for it. And Moses accurately looks at that situation, and he says, there are no words that I can say to you. There's nothing that I can do for you. There's nothing that I can promise you that is going to quell how angry you are. Anything that I say is going to be like throwing gas on that fire. I have no water for you, literally to put out the fire or to put out your thirst. There's nothing that I can give to you for that. He thinks wisely about the situation. You need to as well. Don't think that you always have to justify yourself. Don't think that you always have to answer every situation because sometimes it's just not helpful. Secondly, he turns to the Lord immediately in verse 4. Moses turns and cries to the Lord, What shall I do? He basically throws up his hands. Let's be honest, this is not what we expect out of leaders. You won't find throwing up your hands in leadership books. It's not typically something that is given for leaders to do. We don't expect this out of leaders. We don't want this out of leaders. Leaders are told to stand up for themselves and their people. They're told that they need to be people who fight. Leaders are always to have answers for the things that come across their plates. They're always to act quickly and decisively. That's what leaders do. And Moses does none of those things. He turns to the Lord and he says, I don't have the faintest idea what to do here, Lord. You, you, these people, they're going to stone me. I, I've got no answers for them. So he turns to God for help. Unlike Israel, who turns against him, Moses doesn't then turn against them, but rather simply turns to the Lord. Unlike the grumbling Israel, he turns to the Lord for help. He doesn't turn to the Lord and say, Lord, why have you given me these people? Don't you know how much headache this has been? I'm an old man. Just let somebody else take over. No, he turns to the Lord for help. And therefore, thirdly, he trusts the Lord. He thinks clearly and then he trusts the Lord after turning to him. The Lord's command, honestly, at first blush, don't make a lot of sense. The word horeb comes from this sort of root word in Hebrew, which means dry or desolate. So they're in the middle of this wilderness where there's no water, and God says, here's the answer. You're going to go to another dry place, another desolate place, and you're going to find a rock, and you're going to strike a rock. It doesn't seem to make the water problem any better. It's odd to have him go to a rock. Of all the places where water might be lurking, inside a giant rock doesn't seem like a very likely place. In the ground, sure. There's groundwater all the time. Maybe this is a, an oasis, a, a little spring of water just below the surface. Maybe that, that, that's conceivable. Maybe in the air, sure. Water comes from the air all the time. Maybe in plants. Plants sometimes keep water inside of them. Sure. Maybe we'll come upon a bunch of cactus. But that's not what happens. He says, go to a rock. The, the last place you would ever think to have water. And that is, of course, the point. 
Making water come from the rock is a sign of God's majesty, his might, his goodness, and his power. That God is able to bring that which gives life from that which is dead. That is kind of the Lord's thing here in Exodus. It's the Lord's thing kind of throughout the rest of Scripture, that he continues to give people life through death. The people are before him and they live before him because a lamb died for them. Literally, in the Passover. The people stand before him because they passed through death, that same death that covered up their enemies in the Red Sea. And now they have life because God made living water come from that which could never, ever support life and doesn't ever have water in it. This is precisely what Jesus does. These great symbols in the Exodus account that we have are so well mirrored in the book of John. After Jesus has died, still up on the cross, a Roman soldier comes by. Without breaking his legs, which we're told is never to happen to the Passover lamb, the soldier has to check and see if Jesus is dead. And what does he do? He pierces him, a spear. Two things come out, blood and water. Blood, because he's the lamb. The lambs are killed. They have their necks slit so the blood can flow out. Jesus' blood flows out because he is indeed the Passover lamb. But water as well, because Jesus is the rock. He is the one that provides life from death. It is from the death of Jesus Christ that we have life. This is going to erase all of the accusations that could ever be leveled against Moses. Did you bring us out here to die of thirst? No, because God can give you water out of a rock, friend. He can sustain you anywhere and everywhere. And in the end, because Jesus has been given life, because God has shown to do justice, will always do justice, will always do what is right, what accusation can possibly stand against you? Has not the accuser of the brethren been thrown down? If, if somebody comes to you and accuses you of wrongdoing, if you haven't done wrong, will it not be known one day? Will God not make it clear and obvious to all that you are innocent of the charges that have been brought against you? So often, we hear this in the Psalms, and the Psalms we get a little bit rickety because we believe that everybody is sinful, everybody is guilty, and God is never going to clear the unrighteous. But every once in a while, the Psalms talk like this. O oh Lord, the Lord judges the people's Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. It doesn't mean that in the final judgment I will stand before you. He means in this instance, when people are bringing accusations against me in this way, I know that I am clear. I know that I am innocent. Jesus knew. He had the accusations brought against him. And what did he do? He kept his mouth shut. Because he knew that God would always bring justice to him. If people bring accusations against you, turn to the Lord. He has shown in the work of Jesus Christ that not only will he bring to light every accusation that is false, but he will clear you of it. And what's more, if it's true, Jesus has forgiven you on the cross. Trust the work of Jesus in every situation, even when those who are closest to you, 
Even when brothers and sisters turn on you, even when sin takes them over, trust that the work of Jesus Christ will make it right in the end. Third, let's talk then about our external enemy. Our external enemy. This is a brilliant passage of Scripture. I love uh, so much of the way in which Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures write these things. And there is something about the way in which they write which communicates things to us without telling us. One of those things is right away in here is the surprise of the attack. We know nothing of Amalek. We don't know where he is from. We don't know who he is. We don't know why he's peeved off. We don't know what he thinks he's going to get out of this. We know nothing about him. All of a sudden, if you were reading through here, you're just like, oh, there's some guy. He's fighting with us. Why, why is Amalek here? And why is he fighting with Israel? They, we don't know. We're not given any of that information so that we can feel, I think, precisely like Israel felt. They were completely caught off guard by this. Why, why are we being thrust into war right now? We're told at other places that Amalek didn't just come up and surprise Israel in war, but more than that, he surprised Israel in war by attacking their rear guard where the slowest members of Israel would have been traveling, the weakest. It wasn't just a surprise attack, it was a cowardly attack. Because of this, Moses is going to build an altar and he will talk to Joshua and make sure that it is written down that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We're not going to see where that trail will lead us. If you want to know where it leads us, you can go to the book of Esther, and you can even, we've preached on Esther in this, this place before, you can go and find those sermons, and you can see where that's going to eventually go. But the very surprise of it comes up here because it, it just catches us off guard. All of a sudden, we're at war. We thought that we were escaping war. That was the whole reason why God didn't lead his people up by the Mediterranean. He led them through the Red Sea, the reason why they were going out in the wilderness. They weren't ready for war. But war is thrust upon them. Even the nature of the battle here, the text shows us something about the nature of the battle and that it never tells us anything about the battle, really. The picture we get is not of brave young men fighting others. The picture we get is of an old man who needs to have a break, right? He sits down. He's got her and he's got uh, Aaron lifting up his arms to keep them aloft. The question of all of this is how is this going to correspond to us today? We're, we're great with one-on-one -on -one correspondences. We say, hey, when accusations falsely are made against you, you look to Moses. What Moses does, you do, right? That's pretty, pretty straightforward. If Moses does this, then you do this. But we can't do that here. External enemies come against us. The church isn't to raise violent hands against them. We are called to do exactly the opposite, to pray for them, to ask for forgiveness for them. We need to understand something. I think that it's important. We've mentioned it, but I'm going to mention it again. We t generally, as human beings, understand that which is invisible because of that which is visible. What I mean by that is, that this is basically what metaphors are meant to do, right? We have abstract concepts that metaphors help make concrete for us. God is doing precisely that with us and with the Israelites as well. To get the Israelites to know that he is always with them, 
he first appears to them and shows them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And he leads them and he guides them. He he protects them and he leads them through the Red Sea this way. But now, as they start to question, is God among us? It's clear that I think somehow God's presence with them is not quite as visible. It's not quite as felt. But even so, to make it very clear in our text that it is still the power of God with them, we have Moses holding up the staff. When he holds it up, they're victorious. When his arms drop down, they start to lose the fight. So it's clear that there's still this this depiction of the power of God with them. And eventually that's important because once they enter the promised land, the war is going to be carried out as normal and they need to know God is still with us. The same kind of thing is repeated in the book of Joshua. When you enter into the book of Joshua, the very first battle is the battle of Jericho. Walk around the walls, walk around the walls, then do it seven times. And the walls just fall. It's very clear and evident and visual that God is the one who is giving you victory. When you go to the second battle at Ai, it's nothing quite that mysterious. God is directing the battle plan, but it is still the men who are fighting who gain the victory. By the time you get to the rest of the battles, the Lord is driving out the people like a hornet, so he is still the one doing it, but it looks perfectly, naturally normal. In the future, the people will not see a staff being raised up. They will just see the normalcy of war. As God's visage fades, the faith of the people is to rise. God is still present even though we can't see him. That's the idea. This is true with respect to God. It's also true with respect to his enemies. Yes, those enemies are right there in front of them, but so are the gods who stand behind them. When the people of Israel fight the people of Canaan, it is not just that they are fighting to see whose God is better. The gods themselves are going after one another to see which God will contend and win. Finally, by the time we get to the New Testament, we are instructed that we are not to fight against flesh and blood But as Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6, we fight against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers in the present darkness, against evil forces in the heavenly places. We still fight. We're still people of war. But we have a better understanding of who that external enemy is. That external enemy is not, first and foremost, the people of the world. It is the demonic powers that stand behind them. And the interesting thing about this text, really, truly, is that we still fight in the exact same way. Because the victory here was not won with the sword. It was won with a wooden stick. Staff held by Moses is clearly some depiction, a symbol of the power of God in the hands of man. It was the staff that was used to make water into blood. The staff was used to make earth into lice. It was the staff Moses used to bring the hail. It was the staff that Moses used to part the sea. It was staff that brought water out of a rock. It is a depiction of God's power in the hands of man. So what is our power today? What is it that we as the church are to wield? The very same book in which Paul says that all enemies will be placed one day under the feet of Christ. He begins by saying these things. Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we 
We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He will go on to say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So long as Moses held up the staff, the people of Israel would always win. And so long as we continue to hold up the wooden cross, we will always win. The power of the church has never been the power of the world. We have fancied sometimes that it is. It's never been that. Our power is not political. Your power is not in voting blocks and politicians. It is not in legislation and campaign promises. Your power is not seen in winning some sort of culture war. It's not even seen in fighting that war. Your power isn't seen in education, certainly not seen in the military, nor is it seen in the money that can be raised. It has always and forevermore been this. It is the proclamation of the cross of Jesus Christ. We fight the cosmic powers of the darkness and the forces of evil in heavenly places by simply proclaiming that Jesus Christ was crucified and died for you. We don't need to win elections. We don't need to force our views on other people to make them come in line with us because we don't believe that Islam is correct. We think that God himself has to change hearts and minds and that he does that by proclaiming the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That is our power, nothing else. And even if we, for a momentary speck of time, might hold some sort of political or military or, or any other kind of the power of the world, let us never be distracted by that because this is where our power lies. And the minute that we think that we can win the victory without God standing behind us is the minute that Moses lets his hands down and we start to lose. We are indeed surrounded by enemies on every side. Inside of us, around us, what are we to do? We are to trust you're to trust the work of Christ and brothers and sisters around you. You're to trust that they will be brought under the conviction of the Spirit when they do accuse you wrongly. You are to trust the work of God in you so that if you do the very same thing, they will be quick to forgive you and gather you back in unity. You are to trust that God's good plans are indeed being carried out might not understand why the world is unfolding the way it does. You might not understand why an enemy appears suddenly out of nowhere. Nevertheless, trust God. You must trust God that he will make all things right as he proved to Jesus, in Jesus, and through Jesus for our sake. And in the end, we always do what we've been called to do. We trust in the power of the cross. It is by that trust that we will defeat ultimately all of our enemies. And in the end, we will be seen not just as those who survived, but as more than conquerors over every enemy that stood against us. Our sin, our accusations, our enemies. Let us pray. Our gracious and good God, we as your people are weak in the ways of the world. 
We are ignorant of many of the plans that you have, not only for our lives, but also for the entirety of the world. We don't know why things happen the way they do. And because of that, we find our steps difficult in this world. We get frustrated and angry, depressed. We are prone to grumble. Forgive us for these things. And give us faith that we might ever trust you, even in the midst of our enemies. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.